Good evening. Tonight we celebrate our last Tomorrow's World of a decade which has been both exciting and perhaps a little frustrating by finding out how some of the projects we've covered in the 70s are shaping up as we move into the 80s. And we start our programme with our familiar but still mystifying collection of titles and the now vintage theme music... I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 44 of... Round the Archives. And not only episode 44, but a new year. And a new decade. So, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. <laughs> There's still quite a bit to fit into this episode. Yes. I said I wouldn't do one as long as the Christmas one. No. And that's true, mm-hmm. but it's perhaps not as short as I thought it was going to be. No. But that's not a complaint from me. No. No. So, let's get on with it. Mm-hmm. First of all, Warren will join us on the sofa mm-hmm. to look at... Tomorrow's World. Happy New Year, Warren! Happy New Year, everyone! Happy New Year! Year. Welcome to 2020. Yes, January 2020. That sounds very spacey, doesn't it? Sounds very space age, doesn't it? Well, it does, that's the thing. It's not, but... (laughs) And indeed, welcome to Tomorrow's World. Absolutely. Which is from the point of view of recording, because we're recording this on New Year's Eve Mm -hmm. 2019. Yes. So we thought we'd look at Tomorrow's World from the 27th of December 1979. We're all sat here in our silver foil suits. Yes, on (laughs) on the verge of the 1980s. Yes. So to finish off 1979, Tomorrow's World looked back at the 1970s -hmm. and what they'd got right and what they'd got wrong. They didn't get much right. Didn't get much right. (laughs) It was all beige, wasn't it? BBC Genome says... Ten years ago, it seemed there were few problems which couldn't be cracked by the ingenuity of Britain's scientists and technologists. Energy shortages would yield to the infinite power of the atom, long distances would be shortened by supersonic concords, and so on. Today, Michael Rod, Judith Han and Kieran Prenderville look back on the reality, the successes, the failures, the tragic and the humorous, and the way the programme itself has changed. Do you remember the all-male cast of presenters in the 1970s? Do you? Vaguely. vaguely. I, I don't. I was only seven. There was Biddy Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, we start off with a bit of Johnny Dankworth. Oh, yes. Yeah. And the rather weird title sequence. I always loved the title sequence. I was always disappointed when they changed it to the brain thing. Yeah, because it's mostly made up of um, pills, ball bearings and fried eggs, isn't it? <laughs> fried eggs. <laughs> In a pan. I want to know how they got that fried egg to do the letter I. I'm not sure it's a real egg. It could be a fake egg. Oh, I'm yes. disappointed now. There goes my childhood again. But, but you said, Warren, looking back on this... All you think of now is look around you, isn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. Especially when they mentioned they had an invention of the year competition. Yeah. Going, oh, God, okay. <laughs> and you're going to get Sir Prince, Prince Charles, Charles in. Yeah. 
But we start off with a report from 1972 about the Channel Tunnel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> William Woolard going on a train. And how it'll be, you'll be able to go through it within six years. Yeah, yeah. That didn't happen, I did just, I just expected um, a picture of William Woolard doing this report with half a dozen hairy-ass workmen leaning on their shovels, smoking their tabs and a, a cup of tea in their hand and, cha- and a sign saying Channel Tunnel starts here. But it's going to go from West London Central, yes. as it's called. On the hour, every hour. Which is technically not too far, because Old Oak Common is where they keep the trains. Yeah. And that's West London. But you'll, you'll notice a theme with all of these these sort of amazing projects that were going to happen. They never happened. Well, they either never happened. <laughs> or they're really the delayed. Or they were delayed or, or much more expensive. And that's where we were really good in the 70s at doing things, is either being half-arsed at it or not actually completing anything within the time span. But we see some empty fields, <laughs> don't we? And he's driving about in a Hillman estate. Hillman estate, not very fast. Yeah. yeah. But to uh, demonstrate France, we get some accordion music, <laughs> don't we? Well, they can't actually afford to go to France. Yeah. And then he's and uh, Mr. Woolard drives up in his car, winds his window down. Oh, looks very seedy. And, into and the you camera. used the word seedy again, didn't you? <laughs> It's, it's almost as if he was going to lean down with a would you like to see some puppies type <laughs> sort of look. It was quite disconcerting. But we remember when it went from um, Waterloo, mm. don't we? Yes. Yeah, I caught it from Waterloo. Yeah, because yeah. when I'd always come in to sort of meet you in London, yeah. they'd always, I'd always go past that bit on yes. the train, wouldn't they? Yeah. Came in on the platform from Salisbury or mm-hmm. where, wherever. But it's not even there now, is no, it? No, no. They've turned that into a sort of theatre area now, haven't they, where the platform used um, to be? It's been converted into part of the railway station. Oh, now. Yeah, yeah. Into them. yeah, the last... I think just after they moved it, they did the railway children there. That's right. Yeah, I always wanted to go and see that, because yeah. they're the real steam train, didn't they? Mm. Yeah. But eventually, of course, it, do, it did happen. I think my brother-in-law worked on the construction. All right. Mm. I remember them breaking through and shaking hands. Yes. You remember that bit. But next up, we do get actually something that did work. As <laughs> <is>, uh, <laughs> you've got Kieran Prendville and a bloke who's got a sort of communications thing, hasn't he? It's like a big typewriter because mm. he can't speak because he caught some mystery illness in France, unquote. I don't know quite what that was. Uh, but he's got this typewriter thing with a little unreadable display. Yeah. It's the sort of display you had on the sort of um, speak and spell thing. Yeah, the, oh, the, yes. the red ones. Yeah. That, yeah, That's why I was expecting a voice to come out sounding like sort of the... the um, speak and speak and spell. Speak and spell, yeah. Who yeah. Texas Instruments? That's right. Yeah. 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 yeah, But it's referred to as a light writer, which is yeah. quite a nice name. It sounds very futuristic, that. I wonder if he did, ever did manage to, to do it so that it developed speech, sort of like Stephen Hawking's kind of... Well, I, I expect you could, but uh, it's quite well. So a light, a light writer. I, I, I like terms like that. It's like pinny prompter sounds yeah. better than. Um, but I said, unfortunately, you just can't read it. No. <laughs> it doesn't pick up on the camera very well. But never so mind. if you're trying to communicate to somebody who's got limited vision, it's not going to work. Well, is no. It? But he's also modified his car um, <laughs> with one control, which is like this sort of multi-purpose sort of joystick thing yeah. so they immediately get their spitfire pilot in to, to drive it <laughs> raymond baxter yeah 
It's like I, I almost expected him to put the leather cap on yeah. his head and goggles on, and off he'd go. Well, I said, I'm sure he's looking for the, for the machine gun so he can mow down some pedestrians. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you, you said about Raymond Baxter, you've got a few stories yes. about his, his sort of Air Force days, haven't you? Yes, when he was flying over a, a wooded area in, I think it was uh, nor- northern France, and his number two, who went by the name of Cupid Love. Okay. Um, was that his real name? No, that was his nickname. I was going to say. <laughs> they were flying over this wooded area. Then all of a sudden, the V2 rocket just took off in front of them. And his number number two opened up on it. And he said it was probably the most um, unlikeliest um, shot in the entire world. And he said he's very grateful he didn't hit the bloody thing as it went up through the woods. Because it probably would have taken the, the, the pilot who shot at it and in his entire squadron with him. But you said, Warren, uh, using your professional head, uh, that looks very easy to hotwire, doesn't yes. it? Yes, it, it was like a Meccano sort of two b- bits of metal, isn't it? Yeah. Set up like you just push them together and off it goes. And you can't feeling that Raymond's looking for the ejector seat yes. button, can you? Yeah. <laughs> but but later on, he, he's modified a, an Austin Princess as well. Oh my. Which he drives off out of the studio oh, in. it's left-hand drive as well. And yeah. it's designed so... If he gets tired. If he gets tired, his passenger could drive. You're relying on your passenger to be able to actually be, uh, have a driving license. I should try that. I think you'd probably just take a driver with you, wouldn't you? So, yeah. <laughs> but this thing about... I'm, all, so eh? I'm popping down to the shops. So I'm just going to get the next door neighbour because I might get tired. But this thing about all male reporters. Mm. But the 1970s saw the invasion of the females. Yes. Go on, Lisa. What did you think of this? This I montage did, of ladies. I did sigh. Yeah, this montage of ladies in with, some with very little clothing on. Yeah. Because they're swimming. I noticed that. Whatever. And Judith Hand on a you wouldn't, backing as, as bronco. Nicola Bryant would say, you wouldn't expect me to be wearing a three-piece suit. No, they no. But did they get them to do a swimming thing purely so they could get them in a bikini or a swimming costume? That's immaterial. Well, what do you think of the bucking bronco demonstration? <laughs> yes, that Judith looks, Hand likes a yeah. bucking She was bronco. having a good old ride, wasn't she? Mm, yes, yeah. quite. Uh, but yeah, no comment. Yeah. Okay. Horsing and around. One of them's got a rubber trout for some reason. I don't know quite what that's it's about. It's to do with sonar or radar or something. Because okay. I think the idea is that she drops it and then she can sort of look on this radar or sonar or whatever it is and, and find the trout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Okay, so we're going to give you this budget. What if you produce this rubber trout? So if you throw it in a river, we can find it. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, what I assume. Is that what you used to do in your laboratories? No, make no. rubber trouts. But yeah, this is this is putting women through their paces, apparently, isn't it? You know, see if they're as good as the chaps. Mm. Basically, That's how it's implied. Somebody isn't it? needs yeah. to smack it around the face for that. Yes, yeah. But uh, then Raymond Baxter. It, oh, sorry. Uh, goes off to goes off to Casablanca. In Concord, what? doesn't he? Why did he have to go to Casablanca? He did the duty freeze. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they get shots of camels as but well. He walked. It's typical sort of Raymond Baxter, isn't it? He's got his fawn trousers and his um, blazer. His blazer. RAF blazer. His RAF blazer. <laughs> but yeah, this this is a, a, about how Concord's not been quite the success they they hoped for. Because it never runs with a full passenger yeah, complement. It can't run with a full passenger Because it can't fly like. with a full load, they, they realise. <laughs> Do you reckon they made like people 
base out as well. Now you can't all sit on that side; it will dip. <laughs> so. well, that's how planes. They, that's how they laden planes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, so like, if you've got two larger people, they have to sit on opposite sides of the plane. <laughs> But you immediately said to, on the wings. to us, Warren, have you ever been to uh, Yeovilton, mm. where you, where there is uh, a Concorde that you can get on? Yes. And we've been on that, we have, we? And it's, it's tiny. tiny. Yeah. yeah. No room for your knees. Yeah. Which It's ridiculous because we looked at that and we'd previously been, not, not recently to that, but a few years before to the... Um, Railway Museum at York, yeah. where we've been on the, one of the bullet trains, which yeah. has loads of room. Yeah. You know, it's just... But yeah, if I had to go on Concord with you, hours, I'd be all plimmed up when I got well, to the other that's, side. That's why it only takes like a couple of hours so yeah. that you don't get like that. But yeah, apparently the windows get hot and, <laughs> it, and it's get, it gets bigger by 12 inches. That's so. right, it does expand. Yeah. Is that not slightly worrying? Well, the windows are hot. Yeah. Mm, they might fall out like they did in the comets. And and moving on to the next thing, I love the way Judith Hand says, and another disaster. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing much went right in the 70s, did it? Is it's the a... Dungeness nuclear power station from the claws of Axos. <laughs> Which is still not nuclear powered up at this no. point, is it? Because they, they, they gave it to a British company. And to the make... boiler was distorted. <laughs> yeah, distorted. the boiler didn't fit. <laughs> and I said, did Pigbin Josh prang it with his bicycle? <laughs> and, and the... Um, the, the, and the brackets the rusted. Brackets rusted. Yeah. Oh, they got it cheap, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this, this is the wonderful that um, that they did the report and keep having to update the date of when it's going to actually start. And at this start point, working. it's not till 1981 now. And I don't even know whether that was true in the end. Yeah. The brave new world. <laughs> but the future. 70s is like the the oil and energy crisis mm. sort of decade, really, isn't it? Well, it's because until we, um, or not we, because yeah. they discovered North Sea gas, yeah. wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So. Yeah. So there's various forms of weird transport that they th- oh, they hope wow. will catch on. Well, just all, as you said, all like, look, look like little boxes. Yeah, everything was just boxes of wheels or a, or a windmill on the roof. Because <laughs> there's a helicopter car. <laughs> yes. And, and it, it was that thing in like the Jetsons. You'd have flying cars <laughs> by the 20s, by 2020, wouldn't you? And But can you imagine... The free-for-all it would be if everybody had flying cars. Oh. How would you actually police, you know, who who gave way to who? You we, wouldn't. We'd just have giant netting above our buildings, so when they <laughs> fell out the sky... We'd catch them. Catch them. Because, you, you know, even, even on a roundabout where there's supposed to be rules, it can be a bit of a, you know, I'll, I'll try to go first, can't it? Well, it's always like, I always think of that when we um, go, uh, particularly... If we have to take one of the cats to the vets, that yeah. road that you come out on, you can't. You have to turn left. You can't go across to turn, turn right to turn back the way you want to go because yeah. nobody will let you out. Yeah. So you just have to turn left and go up and round. Yeah, but yeah, ima- imagine that with helicopter cars all over the place. You Watching the rubber fish. Why does Rose be be less annoyed if you took her to the vets in a helicopter yeah. car? Probably. But I, I'm I'm thinking ahead now to the 1980s, and you know what's looming on the horizon: the Sinclair C5. Oh, oh. yes. Because that was going to be the big thing, wasn't it? It was. It was fine, apart from the fact nobody could see it. Well, that's out the of the car. So many of them. I, remember, I remember the news report where yeah. they had the truck behind oh, it, and you yeah. thought, "No, that's that's no." Uh, I'll call the co-op now. And that, that's unfortunately a thing with inventors, isn't it? That yeah. they fixate a bit on their own little project and don't think about how it works in the real world. So yeah. Um, but we do have the the metro on Tyneside, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is way over budget and, and late. Yeah. Did you expect to see a key in its roof? Because yeah. it was that kind. <laughs> but it has got that look. I said, is it the film um, 
things to come where you've got these big sort of oh monorails monorails yeah. going over everything it's a bit like that it was very simple to drive so simple michael rod drove it yeah <laughs> but we get to see the first sod don't we <laughs> being dug and you said that's no way to talk about the mayor <laughs> but it's described as a super tram oh my word yes but they work but they're sort of they're worried it's got got, got no guards van Yes. When was the last time you I saw a train? When was the last time I saw? Oh, it, yeah, there was. There would have been sort of a parcel thing in a guardsman, yeah. I suppose. But because yeah. you always hear, like, on in sort of books and things, like you know, kids get sent to the guardsman guards to travel with the guard wherever yeah. they're going because that'll keep them safe. With the sheep and the goats and Indiana and, and Jones, all, and all, yeah, and all the parcels. <laughs> The bags of mail and stuff. But, but, but the phrase British Rail is being oh. bandied about yeah, here, which, which age, ages this yeah. a bit. But yeah, but apparently um, the sort of construction is being affected by bad ground. <laughs> what? Bad ground. And the fact that they had to rebuild the front of the railway station because <laughs> yeah. they were undermining it. And they were going to take an erection now. Yeah, they were going to take someone's plinth. Earl Grey's statue. Earl Grey. yeah. But you said this is just crossrail all over again, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, because crossrail's still. I mean, <laughs> is it actually any bit any opened yet? Yeah, um, it's called it's called the pur- it's purple, isn't it? The Queen Elizabeth line isn't com- <coughs> complete through the centre of London, but the the bits from Reading into Paddington are open. The oh, bits okay. from Shenfield mm. down to. Uh, wherever <laughs> are open, I can't remember where it connects on the. And I know, I know, side. we've crossed rail. They've had a lot of time where they've had to stop so the archaeologists could go mm. in and make sure that um, all the finds are properly. But I think the, the the main problem they have at the moment is is just the fact that they've underestimated the cost of everything. Yeah, yeah. which That's is normal. which happens in time immemorial, doesn't it? Well, funnily mm. enough, I've just turned the page and my next note says, "Try and do it on the cheap." Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> nothing has changed in forty years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll give you a cheap quote so we get the job, and then we just rack it up slowly as we go. Yeah. 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 But on the horizon, not only in the 1980s, but 1984, Ooh. and George Orwell, George Orwell, and brother. And Prestel is watching you. <laughs> so, you see a pixelated face coming round, but it would it would crash halfway round, rotating. You get you get half a face. Yeah. So so Judith <laughs> Judith demonstrates Prestel with her Visa credit card. Clunk clunk clunk. With an clunk. with an amazing futuristic widescreen TV. <laughs> it was. We reckon it was. A I reckon it was just one. a projector. projector it, it's yeah. got to be a fake. It can't be real. Uh, she's. It's after Christmas, and she's in need of two cases of wine. <laughs> <laughs> you just put lush. I just love. The, I love the way she swipes her card as well. Yeah. With those. Those. I mean, because if you if you did that now, if you showed, I think we still have them at work in cases. A power cut, and you can't mm. use the chip and pin mm. machines. We should have the clunk click machine. Oh you yes, know. yes. So you get and because like because yeah. the kids today would be like, "What the hell is that?" But, you no, know, you put your card in it and do that. But Presto, I'm doing actions. I don't know why I'm doing actions. <laughs> <laughs> do that action again. <laughs> but it's not. It's not. It's not just about ordering cases of wine. You can also play games with your children, including the missionaries and cannibals game. Yeah, that's going to be fun, isn't it? Let's see, Grandma. <laughs> I have no idea what this involves. But... Eating Grandma and Prestel. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're, everyone will have one in their home. And you can communicate with your office and print it out on a rubbish printer. Oh, like one of those toilet roll ones. I mean, dot matrix printers that do it so slowly. <laughs> <laughs> And then we get some That's Life 
drawings of, of how <laughs> yes, the Prestel yes. demonstration was apparently sabotaged. Yeah, by the French or whatever. <laughs> it's all about France, this program, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And then we get a brief uh, look at Busby flapping his wings at I'm you. actually oh. quite surprised that the person who's pulling the... Because pull, the picture is somebody pulling out the wire from the back of the thing. Mm. I'm surprised he hasn't got a beret and a stripy top on. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think the BBC really didn't want the Channel Tunnel? <laughs> but there are some success stories they emphasise, mm. uh, including a machine that can bend metal. <laughs> <laughs> Called a and make Anderson shelters. Yeah, because they make Anderson shelters in case, in case there's a, a in case the French war. want to attack us again. A foil bag where you can boil up some kaolin poultice for a horse. <laughs> and what was it you said, Warren? There's an outtake from this. Yeah, she she's um, putting something. She there's. Um, is that where she's spreading it on the bandage? She spread it and she gets a bit of it on her hand. God, it's like hotter than the sun. Yeah, she's like, oh, God, I've got to stop, got to stop. Yeah. But That's why she wears a glove in it this time. Yeah, because it's bubbling away like a oh, cauldron like in the background. Is, isn't it? Yeah. On, a, on an electric hot plate. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very safe, was it? No, We've got it liquid nearby on an electric dreadfully hot plate. unsafe. And then this poor horse. Yeah. The horse didn't... I, I, I don't think that the one they put on the horse's leg was that hot. No, but because it would have kicked somebody. You, you, we were all expecting the horse to just well, to defecate. Yeah. <laughs> Judith go flying across the studio. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a bloke with a stammer in Scotland who's got a device that um, puts a note in your ear. Yeah, and, so that and, you can't hear your voice and and cures it. I would point out that um, I can't remember his name now, but the the um, speech therapist that helped King George VI did that he played in music while he got him to talk yeah and so you can't hear yourself speak so you don't stammer as badly yeah all right so that's the idea so it's an old it's an old idea now now compared to like concord and nuclear power some of this some of this doesn't seem a huge achievement but it's an achievement for that person but that's the thing from an individual point of view yeah I even, can't knock that. Even so. if he has, does, does have to walk around not being able to hear anything anybody says to him because he's got this... Look out for that head. hole! <laughs> but yeah, on the horizon is the age of the silicon chip, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if they said the 70s was all about mechanical engineering, including, like, silly bicycles uh, and... Uh, some farm machinery where you can take the steering wheel off and <laughs> and put it the other way round so you don't have to turn the thing round. You said, why doesn't it just have a reverse gear? But yeah. Um and then jumping ahead for an extra clip as a bonus, mm. we looked at a nineteen eighties uh football oh, video, video game. game. Oh, and it's so familiar to watch the way it loads the screen up. Because yes. it just it, it's it's so sort of it's slow. It made Pong look like cutting edge technology, didn't it? <laughs> and Michael Rod demonstrates how his R's are built up. As Say we, no as, more to that, really. As he gets his pixels out, and yeah. you can see how lettering on a computer screen is actually actually done. <laughs> but yeah, there you are. There's. It's very much a sort of. It does feel like a real transition between two decades, we're doesn't go, it? We're going, as, you, as you rightly said, we're going from a mechanical age to the age of the computer. Yeah, mm. and it's a dying age. Manufacturing is di- now beginning to die. Mm. I mean, I don't know between 1970 and 1979 whether there's a huge difference, but I think between 1980 and 1989, there's a huge, wow, huge, huge difference. difference. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think there's a much there was a much bigger change all round went went on, as you said. Electronics went into everything, didn't but, they? But you have to look at 
the 70s and the fact that we, we were a very poor country on the point of bankruptcy, if not bankrupt. Yeah. We had um, union strife. Yeah. We, we didn't have the technological wherewithal to push ourselves forward. But then you came to the, the 80s and it seemed to push away from it. Everything suddenly became bright colours as opposed to beige and brown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was this vision of we can do it, we can go forward. And that's not because of any political point of view or change of any administration. There was just some emphasis in the 80s of we are going to go forward. Yeah. And we need, we, we recognised we needed to go forward. But there was the innovative computerization the silicon chip we have silicon valley in the states so we are pushing ourselves beyond the limits in certain mm. cases in the 80s weren't we so do you feel you're living in tomorrow's world that you expected at the in, in 1980 well when i arrived here in my flying car yeah <laughs> and my stammer is much better than it used to yeah. be i was doing really well however i waited quite a while to catch the monorail the other day yeah it went to my little village yeah but that's the thing we're still driving petrol cars or, yes. or you know that there, there there are innovations in that coming in but but, but looking your car now you have a, a dab wireless set yeah and it's interesting they call it wireless wireless as opposed to radio set isn't it yeah but dab wireless set um but we we look at the way that we go to work now you work with modern technology on a daily basis yes. don't you? yeah and you doesn't st- really work and you, st- you, st- you still get rubbish printouts oh don't god you? yes <laughs> yeah that's interesting the things that are still you know you still recognize from them yeah. sort of rubbish printouts and 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 things you know costing more than they said they would yeah. so some things have definitely not changed and but... and people not investing in the right areas yeah, yeah. because people we're obviously stout now because of the sort of um, climate emergency we're now starting to look at electric cars mm. but until they put charging points in the middle of the countryside yes. for people who live in isolated areas they're not going to work. No, no I people aren't going to take I, them out. I could never have an electric car because I just—you'd run out of battery. I'd run out of battery. Yeah. yeah, you'd have to have a hybrid car, which was electric and petrol. Because I think the message or lots here, of mice in the wheel. The message that, yeah. here is: if you want a technological civilization, you've got to be prepared to spend the money. Absolutely, yeah. and, and governments or, are never prepared to spend or, money. Yeah, that goes back to when we were talking about why is it costing so much these private companies that are moving forward all are responsible to their shareholders therefore they need quick gains so yeah. they need sh- short term they never look long term they look short term because they've got to get their recuperations back and they've got to pay their shareholders yeah. and the same with governments isn't it the, their shareholders are the people so to be re-elected within a five-year period so yeah they come out with wonderful futuristic ideas but really they're only going to go for the stuff that we can have here and now mm-hmm. but they were there's tomorrow's world absolutely yeah. and it'd be interesting to see where we are by the end of the 2020s oh, gosh. so shall we all go for a drive in our flying cars we now? will <laughs> yes yeah. just park it outside it's got to make that bibbly noise hasn't it well like in the that's quite disturbing bye-bye As always, many thanks to Warren for yes, joining thank us. thank you, Warren. Yes. Yeah. Well, he hopefully will be back. I'm sure he will at some point, yes. yes. Now, Paul, 
mm-hmm. has got a new voice for us. Has he? I'm not saying that Paul's got a new voice. But he's brought a new voice. He's brought a new voice along. Okay. Now, we've mm-hmm. always had people from the UK, mm-hmm. from from the north and from mm-hmm. the south. Yes. But we've got somebody from America for once. Okay. So, Paul will introduce him, mm-hmm. and then we'll see what he's got to say. Mm-hmm. But welcome. Yes, welcome. Hello, Round the Archives people. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti from the Shy Life Podcast and, and Round the Archives, of course. This time, my, um, my my little article for, for this month's episode, it's going to be a bit different. I, I'm going to be talking with a very good friend of mine who is also a podcaster. His name is Toppy Smelly, and he does a show called The Smellcast and also another show called Matinee Minutia. Um, Toppy, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I am a <laughs> fan of Round the Archives and I've heard you and, of course, um, Lisa and Troby. Uh, and uh, I, I have found out already mm-hmm. so much about British television that I did not know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, were, you, you were telling me earlier that you, you started watching Sapphire and Steel. So that's a... Yes, yes. Yeah, that's definitely... A, uh, it's nice to know that that's being viewed... Um, sort of across the across the seas because I'm not sure that was ever shown. Um, yeah, it's been a treat because I'd never heard of it. Mm. Didn't know David McCallum was, and I love David McCallum. Mm. Um, and uh, um, and it's just my kind of show. It really is my kind. I love the low budget. I just <laughs> adore shows that have low budgets yeah. because because I like to see how creative they get, you know. Because to do things, you had to be pretty creative if you didn't have a lot of money. And yeah. I love I love the way they, you know, like how can we do this? Well, and somebody figures out something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I know you and I share a love of um, shows like Dark Shadows, which uh, you know, they're definitely a good example of low budget, but they doesn't stop them trying all manner uh, of weird things. <laughs> that's a perfect example of of the inventiveness of those creators, those producers, and like being a slave to a low budget. But they, you know, they found a way to do it. I I, I just saw the um Paul the uh, uh, the documentary that just came out yes, uh, that you mentioned. What what was the name of it? Um, it was called was it Master of Dark Shadows or something? Yes, yes, yes. It, although it's about Dan Curtis, it, it also becomes very much about the program itself, which is nice. Um, yeah, and um, anyways, that that I. We should recommend that. At least I would recommend it. Yes, you? yes, yeah, certainly, yes. Particularly, um, I, I, I um, saw that you mentioned it and that it was on Prime, and I wasn't sure whether your version of Prime is the same as ours. And I was overjoyed to find it was. So. Yeah, I don't know that it is, but at least you know it That's did have it. that. Um, but what I was going to say is, is right in one of those interviews was one of the old producers. And what he said was, you know, we'd read the script and we'd find out what they wanted to do. And we'd just like, how are we going to do this? 
They had no idea, but they had to come up with some way to do it, and they did. Yeah. Well, um, this time, and I know you've got some ideas, some articles that you'll be um, submitting in future episodes, but I thought we'd just have a little chat about, not about one show, but about some of the shows that maybe I discovered in the 90s, which you sort of remember when you were very young, first time around. Um, But uh, for for instance, I was going to mention the Irwin Allen series. Oh, which, which I know you're very fond of and which I discovered in the probably in the late 80s when they showed them on Channel mm. 4 in the UK. Yeah, and I'm old enough to uh, to have been sitting there as a kid in the late 60s watching when they actually aired and and uh, you know, it didn't matter what Erwin Allen he didn't he sprung out a lot of uh material in a fairly short amount of time and i watched them all <laughs> did you have a favorite because the the four i think of are um, lost in space voyage to the bottom of the sea um time tunnel and land of the giants those are the four that i really think of certainly the ones i i saw yes and there were other attempts um i know a certain a couple of pilots that did not sell um and on you i wish i could tell you what they were paul because one of them is on youtube and it's utterly fascinating Uh, an Irwin Allen TV show that was never picked up and they've got it on YouTube I'm sorry I can't tell you what it's called but maybe if if you search for Irwin Allen it'll come up but Uh, sure I remember uh, I think those were the main four Paul you you hit them yeah those are the ones that that were And um, I, I was kind of fascinated how they often start off quite serious, like Voice Bottom of the Sea, the first maybe the first couple of seasons, I think, and they're, they're a lot more, they're a lot more, they're a lot more serious stories, spies, and then as time goes on, the sillier plots and monsters come in, which uh, there's probably no surprise that those tend to be the eras of the shows that I like. Same with um, same with um, Lost in Space. It starts yeah. off. Relatively serious. Yeah, then, quite serious. And yeah. then I think I think of season two as being the season where um, a lot of the monsters involve people wearing tights over their heads. <laughs> well, you know what we can blame that on, right? <laughs> you know me. what? Tell well, me. it'll be obvious once I say it. Batman. Uh, yeah. Batman was uh, okay. So first we had Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That was Irwin Allen's first, and then he started production on Lost in Space. So he had two shows running concurrently: Voyage and Lost in Space, um, which coincided with the premiere of Batman, which was, you know, breaking. Well, I don't know about breaking, but it was highly rated. Okay. And Erwin Allen said, we got to go kook here. We, we got to be like Batman. And that's what that's who we can blame, Paul. <laughs> we can blame Batman for Voyage and Lost in Space going camp. And, and Batman also affected the Avengers as well with the first uh, color um, Diana Riggs season is very influenced by Batman. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I think if you, you, if you, you, a lot of the... It's face sort or of pop arty that that season. Um, it's but, been so uh, long that I've seen episodes of the Avengers. Maybe, mm. maybe I would see that 
thinking back, I certainly wouldn't didn't know or wouldn't have felt Batman was a mm-hmm. uh, influenced the Avengers. And and um, of I I think of the other Irwin Allen series, I was quite keen on Land of the Giants, and that one manages to keep a little bit more doesn't get quite as silly as the silliest episodes of Voyage to Bottom of the Sea or Lost in Space. I mean, I, again, I, I like the silliness, so, but but um, I think Under yeah. the Giants is, is probably a little bit under, underappreciated. But, uh, I agree. Um, uh, it did not get quite as silly, and, I, and I'm not sure I understand why, because it, <laughs> did, it did start in production after Lost in Space, and why Irwin Allen thought, I don't know, why he, but he did... He, it wasn't campy. It was not campy like Batman. I mean, by the by, the third season of Lost in Space, you have carrot monsters and everything. It's great. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, I, I appreciate. Look, look, I love Lost in Space. I watch all three seasons, no problem. Um, but my my favorite episodes are the first season when you know it was trying to. I mean, if you think back to those first three black and white episodes that were basically the re-edited original pilot the chariot in that sea uh, I mean that was incredible model work I mean it was well done I mean it would have looked it would have looked great on the big screen that's how good it was because Dr. Smith wasn't in the first in in that pilot was he no um, I think I have seen the the pilots at some point and yeah, it's quite a different show, really. Yeah, um, it. Uh, yeah, Doctor Smith was thought that. Well, the the thinking was by Irwin Allen. Okay, okay. So you, we we got this family. They're all nice to each other, and he just felt like something needs to stir the pot. Um, and so Doctor Smith was invented, but he was only going to be a temporary character mm-hmm. uh, for the first season, and not even the whole season. Um, but we have Jonathan Harris to thank for basically saying, boy, I'm getting a paycheck and I want to keep getting this paycheck. And I'm going to really, he just went off script. <laughs> and it turned out that people loved it. And it, he really invented quite a character. I, um, I remember him in an episode of the second season of Land of the Giants. So even though Land, um, Lost in Space was finished by that stage, um, he, he he sort of he still sort of um, was involved with Erwin Allen's TV shows in a lesser extent. He was only in one one episode of Land of the Giants. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I uh, I'd forgotten that, but but now that you mention it, I I do recall. Uh, let's see now. So Voyage lasted five seasons. Four. Four. Seasons. Four? Yeah. Uh, Lost of Space three, three, Land of the Giants two, yeah. and Time Tunnel. Or just the one. Yeah. Just the uh, one. I, I don't know what was. I don't know what the what it was with Time Tunnel, 
that meant that didn't. I think they did cover so many historical events in the season that I, I don't know. I, I, it was a lot more of a serious show, although I do remember there being one or two sort of lost in space type monsters turning up towards the end. But uh, <laughs> I do know that one thing that was challenging the, the writers, mm. um, you know, in, in the scenario. Not so much Voyage, because that opened itself to a lot. Uh, and so did Lost of Space, but Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants? To get a script in there that fit was a real challenge. And uh, I can just... I would love to be a fly on the wall in that writer's room. <laughs> and watch how they say, God, what are we going to do this week? Oh. Oh. <laughs> and they're you know just they're just desperate desperate to come up with a story <laughs> well, I don't think that there was ever a year when all four series were being made, I think there were certainly three uh, uh, at the same time. I, I, I have a feeling that um, the first season, perhaps they had um, Voyage, Lost in Space, and Time Tunnel all being made in the same year. Land of the Giants was 68 to 70, so um, probably the last season of Lost in Space and maybe the last season of Voyage was being made that year. I'm not sure Voyage may already have... Because Voyage is the earliest one, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. And I do know for sure uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space overlapped. Yes, they did. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, Paul, even even the episode you mentioned where Dr. Smith is this living carrot, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the writers said, well, the whole reason that happened was because we just didn't have a friggin' clue what to write next. They were at the end of their rope, and that episode does come at the pretty much close yeah, to the end is, of that yeah. third season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, um, uh, I, I wanted to briefly mention a couple of other shows. The first one being an example of a show that um, got really good repeat airtime in the UK in the 80s and 90s. I, I definitely saw it repeated uh, but I don't know how how important it was at the time in the states, and that's the Invaders. Mm. Uh, I really, I really used to like the Invaders. Um, it's kind of like a an alien remaking of the Fugitive in a way, isn't it? With the, with Very him being on the ground and um, yeah, the whole concept that I believe started with the Fugitive. I may be wrong. But many television shows followed this idea of following a character from situation to situation as he, for some reason, had to keep moving. You know, there were all different kinds of reasons why each show had the character that had to keep moving. But the idea was that uh, 
he'd be in this town and he'd meet someone who had a problem and somehow uh, <laughs> yeah. that he'd help him with that or somehow they'd get involved with the uh, so-called invaders etc etc you could tell because they had a funny little finger and uh... oh that's right yeah uh, so about the invaders yeah now see i have no memory of watching this as a kid all right mm-hmm. so i i didn't know about it i mean i knew about Voyage, loss of space, blah, blah, blah. Didn't know about invaders. So never came across my path. And I learned about it, I don't know, 10 years ago for the first time. think I just found it on YouTube and was like, wow, what is this, Jim? <laughs> what have I stumbled onto? And so I watched it. And um, that's my experience of it. Had no memory at all. And so I got to say that how many seasons do you think it was? It was two. Uh, the first season, I think it might have been a mid-season replacement, so there might only have been 17 episodes or something, and that's not even quite as much as a mid-season replacement. But uh, then, then, it, then there was a full-length season of maybe 24-plus episodes. My impression, then, is that this must have come on and been pretty much forgotten in the U.S., because well well okay for for example here's here here we go all right uh lost in space syndicated in america we saw it you know for years yeah. when you know you'd come home from school that that might be on or it might be on every saturday for years uh like star trek the original series you know for a million years that show was somewhere to be found and so was lost in space and to a lesser extent voyage and not at all land of the giants or uh time tunnel tunnel. we never saw those again i remember them because i watched their original run invaders never syndicated because the funny thing is that there was even a, a like a mini series in I want to say something like 1995 with Voith Ennis back in it. Um, really? I, yeah. Um, well, I didn't even know about that, Paul. And, and um, of course, he was also in that early 90s remake of Dark Shadows. He was, um, um, yeah, he, he was one of the leads. Was, in he, that was he Roger? Yes, I think he was. Yes. You know, uh, I don't think I even knew that. <laughs> well, so much, there's so much, there's so, so much out there. There's so many things that you're, you can learn as a cult TV fan. The Invaders. A Quinn Martin production. Starring Roy Finnis as architect David Vincent. The Invaders. Alien beings from a dying planet. Their destination, the Earth. Their purpose, to make it their world. I'm kind of surprised that something as old as the Invaders, that you weren't watching it until when did you say? Like mid 80s, mid 80s, yeah. and again in the early 90s. That surprises me. Yeah, I had a video by the early 90s, and I was at the point where I was like keeping it nicely sort of you know in, in a nice box and stuff because i because in a way i think it was a series that i remembered watching when i was perhaps 10 or something and then it was back say seven or eight years later so it was almost like a mini nostalgia it was like oh that, there's that show i used to watch 
uh, and it's and it's being shown again. So this time I've got a better video and keep it. Mm-hmm. And, the good thing about the invaders is that in the second season they do actually towards about the middle they do he starts to meet a few other people who they all believe they realize that and they start to to sort of form a little group and, and it does have a slight change in the last sort of um, quarter of the, or third of the show and it never resolves it but it you can see that you know it was trying to yeah. not just stick to the same format week after week it was trying to move on the story um, yeah it did slowly develop uh, yeah. who knows where they would have gone and you also saw, I think there's, there's only like one or two episodes where you begin to see, remember there being a, a good episode where one of the aliens has been hurt and he starts to change back into his his proper form. And for mm-hmm. years, I I thought that, I, I found it quite difficult to find out which episode that was. I remembered seeing it and I thought, did I imagine it? And no, it is there, but uh, they didn't do that every week. I mean, if an alien was shot, he would glow red and vanish, but... Uh, mm-hmm. So I just thought of something else, Paul. Mm. Uh, so like uh, the the Avengers, um, the Prisoner, American Television did a primetime run of those shows. Okay. Mm. Uh, then there were other things that didn't show up until they were syndicated. And one of them, Paul, and boy, I watched this whenever I could find it, UFO. Oh. Oh yeah. I also when I think of UFO I think of Space 1999. Um, yes, a little bit later, but a little bit later same same yeah, team. Yeah, again, uh uh Space 1999, you know, we would not have seen in prime time, but it was syndicated and, and like on a Saturday afternoon or something, you could find it. Um but UFO Paul seems like it was way ahead of its time or something, but I think there was just one season. I guess it wasn't all that popular, but I remember like, holy cow, those aliens are in a helmet filled with water or something. <laughs> I just remember being bowled over like this is, you know, I thought I it was good stuff. I think it is one long season but i think it might have been done in different recording blocks and my favorite episodes are the later episodes again where they're trying to do different things and they're trying and and i i would have said that yeah it's really kind of hitting its mark quite late on i mean it was you know always always good but some of they, they they had a formula and they were doing things with that formula earlier on but then they knew they had to change the formula and then Unfortunately, it, it ended, but I yeah. couldn't see it continuing. Um, well, I I loved it. Now, here here this is just sad, Paul. Can I just say this is sad? <laughs> All right, UFO was created when it was late sixties, nineteen seventy. Yeah, yeah. All right, but to me, okay, I, and I admit I haven't seen an episode of it in a million years, but to me. It, it it was sophisticated, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Yes. All right, this is the sad thing. <laughs> Years later in America, we had Buck Rogers. Mm. Years later, mm. which was insipid. I mean, okay, I, I confess, mm. I'll watch Buck Rogers. But think about the sophistication of UFO. And years later on American television... Buck Rogers. What the hell? <laughs> what a difference! Yeah, and yeah. they're separated by years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think probably a lot of the the slickness of UFO came from the fact that 
because that was pretty much the first live action show that Joey Anderson did. And but for years he'd been doing series like Thunderbirds with mm. the models, and and yeah. so I guess they had a certain look to a lot of his '60s shows. Yeah, I mean the, the that model work was you look at it today and you'd go like it's real right no they're little models (laughs) uh was space 1999 also something that he did models for um because the the models were awfully good his team yeah um um but yeah it, it started off quite serious and then kind of went camp in the second series but uh, um because i think the producer was the same producer who did the third season of star trek the original series who was mm. often blamed for things going off the ball slightly with, with star trek but uh, well i i do remember as far as space 1999 is is they clearly uh, they clearly were trying to save the show, and it probably wasn't getting good ratings. I, you know, I guess in Britain, uh, but but they 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 thought they could save the show by in, uh, introducing this female alien. Yeah, and was she not a shapeshifter or something? Yeah, well, she could do something. What could she yeah, do? She, she could turn into an animal, or or sometimes a monster. She could shapeshift, basically. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I remember that was clearly like okay. Spock was. You know, made Star Trek. Let's get an alien in here, <laughs> and she was good. I that was an intriguing character. And of course, I'm one of those people who, not that secretly, quite openly, prefers season two of Space 1999 um, <laughs> because I like the campiness. I find the first season a little bit too serious um, mm-hmm. in a way. I, I, yeah, I find I find it doesn't quite work for me. This the the too serious side, and it goes too far the other way, but. Mm-hmm. I have to say that uh, I have not revisited that show since I was a kid, and I, I'm very curious now because I, I don't remember what you're saying. The the tra- the you know the and I don't yeah. doubt you, but the transformation no, no. of from being going serious to campy. Um, I, I just don't remember. It's just been too long for me. I'd love to see that show now. Yeah. Well, Toppy, we are running out of time, but before we go, I I know. There are series that I know that you want to discuss in separate articles, so we won't touch those. But I, there's there's one series that um, I want to mention as being a show that I know was pretty well known in America, but I, I struggled to see it. I don't know. I guess it must have been shown at some point in the UK, but I only literally saw it about two or three years ago for the first time, having wanted to see it for ages, and that's the Wild Wild West. <laughs> that that was really difficult to to find. I it never I never saw it repeated in the same time as the the Owen Allen shows or or the Invaders or any of those. Um, I, I don't know how often it's been shown in the UK, but I finally got to to see it. Um, partly because it was available on on YouTube, and partly I sort of bought the box set. And uh, I did too. And I think even one of the sort of old gold TV stations showed it. So all, all around the same time, there became lots of different ways of seeing it. And um, um, I, I'm not typically a Western fan, but it's so much more than that. And, and it's, yeah. it's it's very good fun. And I still haven't seen all the episodes, but I now yeah. feel more relaxed because I can see it. <laughs> I can see it. 
Um, I was very fond of that show. Now that's a show that in its original run I did not see, but I but it was heavily syndicated and it was shown, you know, all the time like Gilligan's Island or Bewitched uh, on American television. It wasn't hard to find the Wild Wild West for a number of years. Um, and um, I, I don't know that I saw all the episodes, but I certainly, if it was on, I was watching. I think that's maybe a series that you and I can discuss on the archives together if we both got the box set at some future date. But um, yeah, um, that well, was another show. And I know we got to go, but that yeah. was another show that started out black and white, went to yes. color, and yeah. maybe got a little campier too. I yeah. think. Yeah, Probably yeah, because yeah. of Batman. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only one, the only episodes that aren't on that box set are the later um, TV movies. At least not in my box set. But uh, <gasps> I forgot about the re. Oh wow! Early eighties, I think. Yes. Oh my God! Were they any good? I don't know. I I, I need to find another way of seeing those ones. But, I uh, totally forgot that they did a couple, at least one, maybe more reunion shows when ross martin was still alive he was brilliant i mm. think well they they were both. rob conrad i don't know he just played himself but <laughs> but uh ross martin you know um was, well, um, yeah, it was good. a good show if you can if you can catch it it's definitely worth a look but maybe we'll return to i'll that. say and please if you saw the movie with will smith <laughs> it, it, it was a separate thing unto itself yeah. pay no attention to that movie <laughs> uh, the TV series was well, nothing like it. <laughs> no. Um, well, Toby, thank you very much for uh, making your debut on Round the Archives. And... Well, this was fun, and I'm sorry I talked so much. It was no, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's what you're here for. Um, and we often talk about TV and our own rights and our own shows, don't we? So, uh, um, and we have you and I have done. Um, TV episodes in um, Shall I podcast episodes so mm-hmm. yes well well, hopefully you'll be back soon and maybe we'll be back together on Man the Archives and thank you very much and we better hand back over to uh, Toby and Lisa alright here's back to you Toby and Lisa yeah. Thank you to Paul and to Toppy. Yes, thank you, uh, boys. And hopefully they will be back. I'm sure they will. Very soon. I'm sure they will. Either alone or together, and Mm -hmm. we shall see. We will. Right. Now, Martin Holmes returns to look at episode three of... Quatermass in the Pit. Demons. 
Episode 3 of the Nigel Neal six-part serial Quatermass in the Pit was broadcast on the 5th of January 1959 and attracted 9.8 million viewers, a good 2 million plus up on the 7.6 watching the first episode broadcast on the 22nd of December two weeks earlier. Word was obviously getting around, or maybe those few evenings just before Christmas still had other distractions other than this new fangled telly. Still, 9.8 million is impressive when you consider that TV sets weren't yet quite as ubiquitous as they would become. And even if you factor in that there were still only two channels to watch and that the population in 1959 was significantly smaller overall than it is now, it's an impressive chunk of the population sitting down to watch what was basically still thought of as a horror serial on a Monday evening. And 2.2 million statistics who were busy catching up, another 1.2 would be added for the final episode, but we'll come to that, had probably genuinely believed at that point that they'd missed it forever. Although, due to the newfangled recording processes, the serial did get an omnibus repeat in two parts the following Christmas. It's that good! It also serves as a reminder that, having devoured the Arrow paperbacks seven years earlier and used several quotes from them when writing my thesis earlier that year, this was the first episode that I could actually sit down and watch as Imps and Demons was chosen to represent the Quatermass serials as part of the TV50 celebrations in November 1986. For those of you just joining us, I'll begin with a brief recap to where we're up to. Episode 1 dealt with the recovery of something impossibly old in an archaeological dig, and Episode 2 took us from the discovery of that great age through several great character moments to Sapper West getting the Aurors whilst inside the spaceship that Colonel Breen, Quatermass's new deputy at the Rocket Group, is still insisting is not a spaceship but an unexploded bomb. My articles about these episodes featured in episodes 41 and 43 of the Round the Archives podcast if you want to track them down later. Anyway, as the excitable mid-Atlantic tones of the narrator rumoured, not unreasonably, to be the writer Nigel Neal himself, catch the viewers up over the silent scene from earlier episodes, there's a crafty mention of Quatermass being struck by a fancy, which isn't the sort of dialogue you'd hear in such a place nowadays, that's for sure. Discovery in the builder's excavation at Knightsbridge of fossil ape bones five million years old is followed by something more sinister. What first appears to be an unexploded bomb at a deeper level is investigated by Professor Bernard Quatermass and his new colleague, Colonel Breen. Another ape skull is found intact inside the thing itself. While tests show that the clay contains residual radioactivity, later estimated to be five million years old. Meanwhile, struck by a fancy, Quatermass visits an empty house above the site that is reputedly haunted and neighbours who can tell him about the frightening sounds and apparitions there 30 years ago. In the deepened pit, the mysterious hull is laid bare. Inside it, a compartment is found sealed off by a solid bulkhead, and certain markings on this are identified by Dr. Roney as a pentacle used in ancient magic. Nevertheless, the fancy having been struck the recap from the end of The Ghosts begins as it should with that scream from Sapper West, which is still rather blood-curdling, and we are reminded, as if we could forget, of that figure he claims to have seen which went through the wall. We cut to the interior of a suddenly very clean Martian spaceship, although we shouldn't call it that yet, which is gleaming white with depressed circles on all its sides, which can't help but trigger those memories of a certain timeship to the modern viewer who might have watched a certain amount of science fiction. 
Westy collapses and is carted outside to be greeted by the concrete-headed ire of Colonel Breen, asking whether he is ill. Michael Ripper, as the sergeant, is literally more supportive of Sapper West and tells him to take it easy, lad, in a friendly manner that doesn't last, but I suppose the average sergeant can't allow the veneer to crack too often, and it's a nice character moment. Supported by two of his colleagues, Westy describes what he saw directly into the lens before being carried off in front of what, in theatrical terms, might be considered to be a chorus of soldiers, standing alongside Rooney and Judd, and Corporate Gibson's softly spoken, He's got the horrors! speaks for the nation at that point. Breen, of course, solid concrete between his ears, is dismissive of this blatant display of claustrophobia and declares that West should never have been on the squad, which is an attitude he might regret having just a little later. Quatermass, meanwhile, inside the capsule, ponders upon what was said earlier about strange markings, the pentacle and black magic, and wonders if Sapper West might have overheard, but dismisses it. Alongside Roney, they find that the inner surface is covered in these markings, although they're only really clearly seen on the wall to the enclosed compartment. But the slow creep of the sinister tones of the music on the soundtrack suggests that something worrying is going on. Colonel Breen and Barbara Judd exchange a telling moment outside the capsule which speaks volumes about their differing characters, hints at the deep-seated fears that Breen is afraid to display, and suggests that the Martian inheritance might already be making itself known. It's a skilful foreshadowing of future events that is just subtle enough to feel significant upon re-watching. Breen then pulls himself together and demands that the bomb disposal team dig down another three feet, which the ever-cynical Corporal Gibson recognises as the psychology of keep them busy, don't give them time to think, that it very obviously is. We cut to the hut, just a split second too early to catch the actors waiting for their cue to sit poor Sapper West down, and Roney feels obliged to make some flimsy excuse as to why he's got a supply of brandy to hand. Revived by the brandy, the sergeant is suddenly far less sympathetic as Westy is then interviewed at some length by Professor Quatermass. And despite the sergeant's unpleasant sarcastic scepticism, the music creeps in again as we hear about the mysterious figure of a dwarf and how horrible it was. What a word that is. Horrible. By now, viewers' imaginations must have been running wild about what this horrible vision was that he was supposed to have seen, but his description is picked up by Barbara as she reads from the various articles descriptions of the Hobbs Lane ghost of 1927, and our fears of ghosts are again being stimulated by this master of writing creeping uncertainty. They saw it then, perfectly conveying Sapper West's hope that he isn't, in fact, going completely mad. Sapper West is then carted off onto sick leave with instructions that he better not talk to the other men, and apart from when the other soldiers watch suspiciously as he is helped up the ramp and out of the pit, we never see him again. It's a great little cameo from John Walker, and nicely played. It could have so easily slipped into parody, but the truth and reality of his performance never wavers, and he sells his fear perfectly. Back outside, in the coldness of the pit, another discovery is made, as the digging party find what is presumed to be the missing door of the capsule, although the suggestion from Potter that it would have to have been unscrewed from the inside is ignored by Breen, as he suggests they can use it for testing. Back inside the hut, more of the old tales of hauntings around Hobbs Lane are being read, and the general sense of eeriness is covered by one of three actual jokes in this episode as Dr. Roney takes an I-don't-usually swig of his brandy, which serves to alleviate the tension superbly. 
After all, the audience does have to relax occasionally so that you can ramp up all the suspense again. Neil showing his mastery again in these tiny moments sometimes lost in the shorter running time of the film adaptations. We cut to the sinister sight of John Stratton wielding a blowtorch in rather sinister goggles, but his efforts are in vain as the burn has failed to make the slightest impression, and his protestations that he kept the same spot for five minutes just seem to irritate Breen. At least Quatermass's Rocket Man credentials are addressed for a moment here as he examines this not even warm good stout door with an engineer's eye, pointing out that this rocket engineer's dream heatproof material is unlikely to have been created by the Germans during the war and then forgotten about. Von Braun even gets a name check here, as he probably ought to. Again we cut back to the chorus of soldiers, probably there simply to cover an actor's move during a live broadcast, and once again the gallows humour of Corporal Gibson wondering whether they're all going to get blown up as Quatermass, the boffin as they call him, wields his little pocket knife, and the growing sense of unease that none of them, by which he means those in charge, know what they're doing. What Quatermass does actually wield is a magnifying glass and, as he examines the surface of the still-sealed bulkhead, etched, remember, with those devilish markings, as the creeping music reminds us as he touches the surface with his hands, he discovers one etched slightly more deeply, which might mean that this panel could be unscrewed if they could drill a hole and get some kind of purchase upon it to turn it. Strangely, he seems to be working quite closely with Breen at this moment, presumably as, for once, they both have got the same goal, simply to get into that sealed compartment and find out what's inside. And when they do... And when they do... But we're not there yet. As they already know that the surface is harder than diamond from the professor's experiment with his diamond ring in the last episode, Quatermass suggests they could use a drill with a borazon bit, which is also harder than diamond, at least at high temperatures, which is actually a little bit of real science fact fans and not a made-up thing at all. Breen is sceptical, isn't he always, about this, as it would mean bringing in a civilian operator, which, of course, will bring perhaps the most memorable character of the entire serial, one Mr. Sladden, into the story, although his finest moments will have to wait until episode 4, The Enchanted. Breen hopes that he'll be someone who will keep his mouth shut. Then, via a newspaper headline, from what is now swiftly becoming old news, we cut to a scene which is possibly the most disappointing in the entire serial, but which serves to bring James Fullerlove back into the world of Quatermass, albeit played this time around by Brian Worth. In a tiny corner of a tiny newsroom, a news editor is in conference with a reporter and a photographer, lamenting the fact that the Knightsbridge Ape Men story has kind of fizzled out. It's just the sort of exposition scene that is probably necessary, but seems workmanlike at best, as if they're all playing at the idea of what the popular idea of a newsroom might be. And even as James Fullerlove, who was previously played as a kind of dandy in a trilby in a long overcoat by Paul Whitson Jones, enters the room, it fails to be the exciting moment it promises to be, as if the cliché of the star reporter needs to be served, and the performances unfortunately do seem unconvincing somehow, as Fullerlove identifies our old pal Quatermass and Breen from the news photographs and requests one of those little spy cameras from his never-to-be-seen-again photographer colleague. The delivery of the thinking line, Big Brass, War Office, Guided Missiles, Got It, is where it falls down for me, but what do I know? The style of Brian Worth's performance soon settles down and we are genuinely concerned about his fate later on. Live television must have been terrifying to perform, really, and I suspect that there were lots of moments that made it to air that frightened, adrenaline-charged actors would prefer never did. 
Happily, this segue into another less interesting world is swiftly over, and we return to the pit where the sergeant is setting up a fateful generator, and inside the capsule where Sladden, for it is indeed he, is setting up his drilling kit. Suddenly it seems obvious that getting in and setting up all of this rig now explains that sudden interest in a faraway newsroom as the complicated props were shifted into position. Sladden, played with an easy blue-collar earthy charm by Richard Shaw, introduces himself and his credentials by explaining the secret job he once did to help a man escape from a vault he'd been locked inside of, and this gives Anthony Bushell his finest moment as he deadpans the second joke that this particular episode contains. Then I'm glad you don't talk about it. What a gift that line must have been when playing such an otherwise unsympathetic character as Colonel Breen. Anyway... As Sladden continues to prattle on about how good it is to have insurance in a way that might have worried the Board of Governors of the BBC, we are reintroduced to that generator with which the bomb disposal unit have been having a little trouble. There's also a little bit of visual hand movement business that foreshadows the frostbite that the team will start to suffer from later because it's now getting perishing cold within the pit itself. Barbara Judd, meanwhile, is still collecting specimens near to the hull and finds something on the ground that the script book says is a dead bird, but I'd never picked that up on screen. I always thought it was simply another fossil, but reading that does make a kind of sense, especially as the pieces are starting to fit together and the story is starting to take its latest sharp turn from ghost story into all-out horror story. But she also does take a moment to bond a little with Captain Potter, as that blessed frostbite needs attending to, to help underscore why he is so protective of her later on. Quatermass, however, refuses to leave, even if Breen tries to make it an order. Well, it is his name in the title, isn't it? Certainly, whatever brief air of cooperation he might have had with Breen earlier has come to a swift end. And then, as the sergeant blows his warning whistle, it's time for everyone to clear the area and go beyond the so-called safe limit barrier set up by the UXB boys, and we favour that unexploded bomb sign for several seconds as the civilians, police officers and the sappers all escape the pit for a while. There is a strange, unearthly reply to the whistle, and we are suddenly on edge again, in anticipation that something strange is about to occur, and Sladden sets about drilling into the unknown interior of that mysterious sealed compartment. And, after the strange screeching of the drill, Sladden is perplexed because it too has barely made a scratch upon this mysterious surface. Until... Until... The whole site is suddenly overwhelmed by strange vibration effects and that unearthly radiophonic warble that must have terrified a generation. Potter and the sergeant realise that they're in trouble and the army rushes in to help. Sladden collapses and our hero, Quatermass, is visibly phased by the whole experience as indeed is Breen, who despite his stern retort to West earlier, is actually sick, although thankfully off-screen. Almost convincing himself that this is some kind of freak acoustic effect, Quatermass struggles to get his words out, with fine acting, not because he's dried, and he spins and twists and turns as the sound returns and he staggers to escape from the area. It's a powerful moment in the story, as everyone seems overwhelmed and confused about just what is going on, and even the usually safe pair of hands, well, in story terms anyway, his track record on safety isn't all that great, to be honest, that is... Professor Quatermass seems shaken and bewildered. At the barrier there are questions being asked about what's going on, just as star reporter James Fullerlove rocks up using the magic words I'm press to justify almost anything. Nothing new there, eh? But he's snubbed by Quatermass, 
who is desperately trying to talk to Roni about the occult symbols they saw inside the capsule. And he drags Roni away to try and do some more urgent research whilst trying to talk Potter into getting Breen to do nothing until he returns. Potter's I'll try is responded to with the third joke of the episode, the dryly delivered at the moment I think he's fairly amenable as he dashes off with star reporter James Fullerlove in hot pursuit and sensing a story. At the library, a lot of ancient-looking documents have been gathered, and Quatermass is reading out loud from one of them about alarming noises and spectral appearances reported in September of 1762, as a well was being dug. And whilst the librarian, a coffinous bit appearance by Donald McCollum, as the elderly librarian, is dismissive of such nonsense, wild rumours and speculation, and the things people would believe back then, and there is much talk of ghosts and goblins, Quatermass begins to wonder about whether these stories are simply other phenomena that have been badly observed and wrongly interpreted. Hmm. Badly observed or wrongly interpreted could be a slogan for any TV historian. There's much talk of weird happenings from ancient times, and in a discussion about that peculiar double spelling of Hobbes slash Hobbes Lane, it's the number of B's, you know, Neil throws into that generally church-going nation of the late 1950s that Hobb was one of the familiar names for the devil and set spines throughout the land a-tingling. Fuller Love then turns up in full star investigative reporter mode, and before they know it, he's dragging them off to the Westminster Abbey archives. Westminster Abbey, eh? I wonder how kindly they look upon the old professor. But before they have any chance to get there, back at the pit, Breen is ready to have another go at drilling that hatch, and not listening to Potter telling him that the professor suggested waiting. Breen does at least give credit to the professor's theory about acoustic effects and suggests laying out blankets to reduce this, but before any of this can happen, it becomes apparent that the hull itself has other ideas, as the point where Sladden was drilling has started to melt through in a slightly dodgy effect insert, which we can forgive under the live circumstances, and whilst the honks of distant car horns speak of a world beyond, the focus is increasingly on this tiny hole about to melt through and potentially release all the fuorids of hell upon the world. Potter is desperate to get Barbara away from this place and is increasingly worried about where Quatermass, in this situation the voice of reason, because Brian Dunlevy would have been a completely different fish kettle, is, when the increasingly unbalanced Breen is taking charge. Meanwhile, at those Westminster Abbey archives, another librarian is coughing and spitting, this time played by Fletcher Lightfoot, which is a name to conjure with some of us, as we learn about charcoal burners in 1341, and how this had long been a troubled place, and how such troubles were always associated with disturbances to the ground. Realising the urgency of what they are finding out, Quatermass dashes back to the pit, where Breen is already looking through the peephole in the door with some kind of viewing device, to discover that, indeed, it is not full of explosives, and not a warhead, no, but something else that he's really not prepared to let Captain Potter, the explosives expert, have a look at. Quatermass arrives full of fury and just in time for the episode ending as Breen requests that they might use Sladden's drilling equipment in a different way to get this hatch open. Quatermass borrows Breen's scope thingy and is taken aback by what it shows him. He thinks it's an eye. Breen is suddenly quite shocked, grave and serious, but agrees that it probably is an eye and that he didn't see it move. There is also a strong smell of decomposition as the air rushed into the space the moment they broke the seal, which, if you think about it, is a nice subtle nod to all of those old horror films about Egyptian mummies that they used to make. Quatermass is now fully aware of how quickly they will need to work if they are to find anything remaining beyond that bulkhead, but his next line, warn your men, things may happen, 
must have had those 9.8 million people shifting over to the edge of their seats. What the heck is that thing? Did he say an eye? I'm sure he mentioned ghosts, and goblins, and a hideous dwarf, and the devil. Don't forget that he mentioned the devil. Oh, this has been an absolute masterclass in building up tension, and it really doesn't disappoint. Meanwhile, as Quatermass offers the explanation of subjective impressions, setting off visions and making them hear strange and peculiar noises, he starts to wonder where Fuller Love has got to. He is, of course, in the shed, blagging the phone and calling up his editor. This is, after all, a veritable scoop, but he's really serving in this instant as the narrator, explaining what's going on as we approach that devastating, unforgettable episode ending as, from a high shot showing the entire excavation site, we cut to black as the hatch is pulled away from us, giving us a dead-eye view of first the humans, and then the shot is reversed to reveal... That reveal. The Martians. A slow, tracking shot of three astonishingly well-made and detailed creatures suspended in a decaying web. There must have been cries of, what the heck are they? Well, similar. Across the land as they are utterly alien, with three legs, horned, and with those jelly-like eyes staring blankly back out at us. And then. And then. At exactly the right moment, one of them just drops slightly. A shocking, sudden movement that must have sent grown men and women scurrying off to find several million cushions to hide behind. Even the normally staid Breen jumps. Then Quatermass whispers two words designed to perfectly underscore the tension. The demon. And that perfect episode ending of... It's alright, they're dead. They've been dead for a long time. And those end titles crash in again, and episode three is done, with a promise of more the following Monday, if anyone could bear to wait that long. Oh yes, they had no choice. In fact, with live television, the next episode didn't even exist yet. There was no binge-watching then. And for those of us who came to Quatermass and the Pit far later on, via that much-anticipated VHS release, that was the point where that one word, intermission, popped up, which seems a nice, nostalgic moment to finish on at least until we gather once again to look at the Enchanted, and believe me, that one is really worth the wait. If you think this one was shocking enough, just wait until you hear what Nigel and the Professor have in store for you then. Stay tuned. <laughs> As always, thank you to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. Very interesting again, of course. Episode four of Quatermass and the Pit will mm -hmm. be along at some point in the future. It Not will. necessarily next episode. No. But we'll see how things work out. We will, yes. Right, now to round off, you and I travel back to 1980 mm -hmm. to have a look at... Heidi High. Got the blue. 
you got there what have you got a hottie bottle because i'm cold all right because it's january because it's isn't? january so yeah. which so, is probably when they feel some of this heidi high so well this is heidi high the pilot episode mm-hmm. not called hey diddle diddle despite no. what it says on the dvd yes david croft denies that yes david croft said that he, he would have hoped they would come up with something better something better than that yes Yes. But 1st of January 1980. Yes, that was when it was it was shown. Yes. yes. Getting under 5 million viewers, yes. it seems. Yes, I'm actually surprised they managed to get a series. Yeah, because but... in those days, that was not a lot at all. Yeah, the next episode the next year adds over 10 million yeah. viewers to that. So, mm. yeah, never just go by ratings, no. that thing. But we're in Cambridge, 1959. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stock footage. There is. And you know how I like to collide my fictional universes together? I couldn't help thinking that also in Cambridge in 1959, uh, Professor Cronotis and Scullion from Porterhouse Blue. Okay. Yeah. Because we've got some Cambridge stories ourselves, haven't we? Yes, one or two. Including what? Getting ink all over my head from a copy of Big Finish. Big issue. Big issue. (laughs) And having to go to the emergency cobblers. Yes, because your soul came undone. And we did visit the the pub in Porterhouse Blue, didn't yes. we? Where, where Mr. Zipser was looking for his uh, his gentleman's jimmies. Yes. And we got plunged into darkness. Yes, there was a power cut, and we yeah. were allowed to stand there for an hour. After which, we would all got chucked out. Yeah. But the lights came on just before, I think. But Jeffrey Fairbrother is there mm-hmm. with his mother, yes. who is not impressed with his no. decision to to leave to leave Cambridge, mm-hmm. where he's an archaeologist. Yes. And go and work as an entertainment manager. At Maplin's holiday camp. In the holiday camp. At Crimpton-on-Sea. Yeah. Now, she's just not impressed by anything, though. Even his pyjamas don't impress her. No, no. Because he's got these sort of paisley pyjamas, and she says, what on earth are those? (laughs) Well, pyjamas should have stripes in her book. And she's not keen on these teddy bear boys that you get these days as well. Yeah. (laughs) But Jeffrey considers himself in a rut, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, and his wife has left left him. Yeah. And he's he's boring basically. Mm-hmm. And his mother says, "Well, your father was boring, so you know." But he used to go to just used to go to his club and go yeah. to sleep. And this is a real horrible line where she mm-hmm. says, "Working class people go there." Yeah. That's that's just horrible. Yes. Yeah. But there's there is a whole line of of snobbery that goes through this series with mm. Jeffrey's family yeah. and later on with Clive Dempster's family as well yeah. because they don't consider that yeah. Gladys is good enough for him. Yeah, ba- basically, yeah, that they consider people to be below them. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, that's 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 the thing. And that is one thing you can say about Jeffrey. He's not very good at it, mm. but he's he wants to yeah. meet different people. He thinks everybody's important. He yeah. does. Yeah. yeah. His mother wonders whether he's got an ulterior motive for going there because mm-hmm. he, he saw an ad- she saw an advert with a girl with a brief bathing costume. Yes. I like the black tat teeth and a bunch of balloons. Yeah. I don't think she had a black tat black teeth to start with. But yeah, you have to join in the fun. Mm-hmm. 
So we cut to film of a steam train. Yes. And then we're in the studio with some CSO yes. for the train compartment. Yeah. As Ted, Bovis and Spike arrive on the train. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spike's nervous because it, yeah. it's basically going to be his first yes. stab at this, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, and he, he's brought along some funny glasses, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got like sort of... Um... They're almost Groucho Marx. Yeah, they are they? They've got a sort of yeah. a moustache and stuff. Yeah. But Ted wants to know whether he's got dodgy ears because mm-hmm. he's going to get thrown in the pool multiple a times yes. a day. Um, now Ted had hoped for the manager's job, mm-hmm. but it was advertised in the Times. Yes, I'd love to know what the advert was and yes. wh- and whether Joe Maplin actually wrote the advert yeah, himself. Because that's what you will find out as the series goes on. He's not very good at communication. Yeah, with the written word. I, no. I, I just love somebody to mock up yes. um, the, the, ad. the advert. But we should say about Ted mm-hmm. that there were other actors considered. Yes, because obviously he's played by Paul Shane. Yeah. And David Croft is quoted as saying Harry Seacombe was a possibility. Yeah. Which I can half see I can working. sort of half see, yeah. yeah. And then this one was right at a left field. Yes. I, I didn't believe it when I read this. <laughs> He said, apparently, Frank Windsor. I, I really can't imagine Frank Windsor. Because, A, I've never seen Frank Windsor do comedy. Yeah. And he's, he's just not the type, is he? I was going to say, Fr- Stratford Johns is, is more yeah, likely. Stratford Johns is definitely more likely. Yeah, but yeah. there we go. Yeah, but Ted is bemoaning the fact the job's been given to an, an archie bloominologist. Mm. And he doesn't know what that what one of those is. Yes. I like the way as well that Geoffrey's um, he's, he's reading a book. Seems to be a penguin yeah, book. Yeah, and I was just going to say, somebody sourced an original penguin book. From the 50s. From the 50s, because they've got a very particular With look. that orange. With the orange cover, because yeah, we've got a couple we've got of Christmas yeah. ones upstairs. Yeah. But I, I like the way Ted says, you're not a fast reader, you've been on that page for half yeah. an hour. They haven't been on the train for half an hour. It's just that Geoffrey's just sat there being yeah. earwigging, ear-wigging, but being embarrassed yes. at the same time. Yeah. But Ted's been up for uh, a television audition. Mm-hmm. It's about this series that's set in a mucky street. Yes. <laughs> so we're meant to believe it's Coronation I, Street. I'm guessing it's meant to be Coronation Street. Though I don't know how early they would have started. I, I, I don't know quite casting. how the dates were. It might be about right. I'm, but... I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I don't have access to all the files on Coronation Street, but it does sound a little early to me. But hey. But some people are getting on the train. Mm-hmm. So Ted's advice is to Spike is to act peculiar. Yeah, and they just weird, pull weird faces, don't they? <laughs> Which is, he's not very PC. No, but, but he's quite funny. I must admit, yeah. I did laugh. Yeah. So an old couple get on who are mm-hmm. on holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not going to Maplin's, no. are they? Because uh, holiday camps are for young people, they yes. say. Mm-hmm. But Ted says he's in charge of the fun. And they could enter all the all the things like the knobbly knees competition mm-hmm. and the glamorous granny. <laughs> Are knobbly knees competitions a real thing? Yes. Yeah. Have yeah. you been in one? No, I do have knobbly knees actually, but yes. <laughs> no, no. Have no. you observed one taking no, place? No, I've so. never been to this kind of holiday camp. We did go to to um, holiday camps when I was younger, but it yeah. wasn't as organised. You know, you had the ca- the the clubhouse. Yeah. But there wasn't stuff going on all the time like there was. I vaguely point. remember staying in a caravan when I was very, very young. Yeah. On a sort of caravan site. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly, the the weird the thing I can most remember about that is having some horrible cheese that mm. tasted disgusting. Okay. And the litter bins. All right. Were they, were they... They, they were the round black ones oh, like okay. out of um, 
Dr. Emu, uh-huh. you know, so uh-huh. weird the things that stick yeah. in your head, but I don't remember much more about it. Okay. So, so we cut to Maplin's on film, mm-hmm. where Little White Bull is playing on yes. the which on links the speaker, in because Jeffrey's mother yeah. had said about that little cockney man seeing Little White Bull. And we follow Ted and Spike. Well, she says ball, actually. Yeah, but, we so. follow Ted and Spike sort of through the through the site. Mm-hmm. And they've got this terrifying laughing clown yes. thing, haven't you they? You don't like clowns, do you? Yeah, well, mm. you, you sort of press a button and it, it sort of... Rocks. I was going to say gesticulates, but it doesn't. It sort of rocks about and laughs. And mm-hmm. I, I imagine being a kid and being utterly terrified of that, <laughs> just like not wanting to go past it. But Jeffrey's shown into his chalet by, by Peggy, mm-hmm. who... Uh, says the hot water will be on on Thursday. Yeah, basically basically everything's going to happen on Thursday. Yeah. When she says that later on, she does a wonderful grimace about, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, she gives him a plug mm-hmm. and a tiny bit of soap. Yeah. Really, it looks like it's, like it's really hard. I've been used yeah. lots. And uh, he's got a spare bed. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to share unless he wants to. Mm-hmm. There's the first grimace from yes. her. She stops grimacing later on in the series, doesn't yes. she? Yeah, it's it's quite um, a broad performance yeah. at this stage. But that doesn't, you know, she it's developing the character. Yeah, but everything happens on Thursdays because mm-hmm. that's the day she she gets a night off as well, and yes. she does a, she does a wink at him. She as does. Well. He just looks embarrassed, doesn't he? <laughs> But Ted and Spike are in their chalet, mm-hmm. although the curtain comes off in Ted's hands yes. straight away because um, mm-hmm. he needs some curtain rings. Then they go to the staff room where there's Wilf Green, or as he's now calling himself, Marty Storm. Mm-hmm. Now, I was going to say, what happens to him? Uh, well, yeah. I think because we've got the Heidi High Companion mm. and Richard Cotton, who plays him, who will later go on to be a writer. Mm. I think he said he's he's the the quickest departure from Maplin's. I think they just decided. Yeah, it's just too chari- many characters. There's too so. many characters. That character's fairly inconsequential. So yeah, it's a bit like John Ringham in Dad's yeah, Army. You he's, don't he's really there need him. Then, so yeah, fair enough. But we go through the contents of the funny cupboard. Mm-hmm. So there's a big mallet. Yes. Spike gets hit hit on the head with, mm-hmm. and he has to react. Then there's an arrow through your head, isn't yeah. there? And then you've got. Um, a top hat with it. With it, I put a scabby rabbit. A scabby, that, scabby, scary white rabbit that pops out the top. And yeah, and um, because uh, Ted does a Bugs Bunny impression, doesn't yeah. he? And then Spike says, "Oh, I like rare rabbit," yeah. which is something completely different, obviously. But we see the funny policeman. Uh, mm-hmm. Costume yeah. PC forty nine, yes. who you've looked up, isn't he? Yes. He was in films. There was a couple comic of films and, and on comic the radio. Yeah. yeah. Um, evening all there we get which yes. is obviously a dixon reference there's a funny mm-hmm. funny pirate well, it's just a policeman reference yeah. isn't it so yeah a funny soldier mm-hmm. a funny knight who yeah. gets chased around with an oil can mm-hmm. uh the funny beef eater's gone missing yes. so i don't know who's knocked that off <laughs> Some, somebody like sort of sneaked home wearing it wearing a beef eater costume yeah, yeah. and a funny caveman which mm-hmm. is uh, apparently infested with fleas fleas or something like that mm-hmm. um so then in the office, uh, enter Gladys, yes. who's stowing a tennis racket away. Yes. And she's got very short shorts on. Yeah, and I think is Jeffrey's first sight of her bending over, basically. because yes, he comes in and she's bent over and you just get to see her bottom, yeah. don't you? And she sort of straightens up and go, goes, oh, hello. And there, there's talk of Mr. Baverstock. Mm-hmm. And I said, brackets, Donald? you never know but yeah Gladys is the sports organiser and she's an all rounder 
And I just put Jeffrey's at a loss yes. with her, basically. Yeah, because she's very um, friendly towards yeah. him, for want of a better word. Yeah, he doesn't think... doesn't know what to do. No, he doesn't quite know how to handle it, does no. he? No, he doesn't. He never really gets any easier with it either. But yeah, he's a. Uh... Um, she says about she's uh, in charge of Radio Maplin, mm-hmm. and Jeffrey sort of says, "Who wakes you up in the mornings?" Yeah, <laughs> which I don't think she was expecting. No. So then we then we get Fred Quilly, the riding instructor, coming in mm-hmm. with a big box of hats. Yes, and he hasn't got a, se- a seven and three eighths, uh, but apparently heads are getting bigger. Yes, it's the National Health Fault. Yeah, National Health Service. Free orange juice and stuff, and cod liver oil. But he says his horses are more like camels, aren't they? Um, yeah, see, now, all, all the way through, he has this thing where he's very dismissive of the horses. Yeah. But if if they try and get rid of any, or one is ill, he's mm. he's there and he's really upset. Because there's, there's an episode where he's, he has to get the vet in, and in the end they play with it some, with some of Ted's winnings or something, which we might look at at some point. There's mention of um, when he was investigated for throwing a race or mm-hmm. something and he claims it was Lester Piggott's young Lester Piggott's, young Lester Piggott's yeah. horse threw some mud in his eye or mm-hmm. something uh, Radio Maplin's announcement for everybody to report to the office mm-hmm. and we cut to Barry and Yvonne Stuart Hargreaves who are dancing and niggling at each other which yes. is the two things they do basically yes. Yeah. Um, but yes and it makes me how big um, Diane Holland's hair is in the compared to the, when he get into the series it's much more sort of um, slicked, well, not slicked down, but it's it's either been cut or it's much smaller. It's very big yeah. in this, which is not very sort of true to the period, I don't think. So. so we get to see the girl yellow coats mm-hmm. um, coming out of their shell. They, they they all share one, don't they? I think they do. Yeah. yeah. Or which seems terribly cheap. Yes. But yeah, because there's three in one. Mm-hmm. They've got bunk beds, haven't they? Yeah, I suppose. And they talk about Mister Baverstock as yes. well, and there he was. Uh, he had wandering hands. A bit gropey, yes. shall we say? Um, uh, we we pass Mr Partridge in his Punch and Judy store mm-hmm. and there are two things that he hates yeah. one of which is red tape yep. and the other of which is kids yep. and that, that, that point is rather drummed in yes. isn't it I hate kids I said to you did everybody at home get that yeah, yeah. Peggy's sort of hanging around the meeting yes though she's not a yellow coat no. though even here she says I will be one day yes and they're talking about what what an archaeologist does mm-hmm. and he digs up old ruins yeah so Jeffrey comes in. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Hmm. Uh, Gladys sort of starts a round of applause going, doesn't mm-hmm. she? She's very good at like sort of making people yes be encouraging. Mm-hmm. But Ted and Spike react when they realise who yeah, the bloke on the, the train man from is. The train, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we get the first Hello Campers mm-hmm. on Radio Maplins for the first morning. Yes. You know what I will say to you that um, if that was my first morning, I wouldn't have slept. Because I never. No, you never sleep in. in I never sleep in a hotel on the no. first night, do I? Well, yes. So there's talk of the knobbly knees competition, mm-hmm. bingo, and the ugly face competition. Holy princess. Yeah, and all that. The Olympic sized swimming pool mm-hmm. um, is where they'll have the get together at eleven o'clock. Which isn't heated, which it wasn't in real life. No. Um, so Spike's got the funny policeman mm-hmm. thing on with the red nose. Jeffrey wants to join in the fun so he can be the funny chef. Yes. I love the fact the funny chef costume consists of a tray of pies and, and a, a hat. hat. And that's it. Yes. There's no smock or anything. No. So he's given the the tray of pies. Mm-hmm. And when he makes his entrance, he has to say... Pies, pies, who wants a custard pie? 
You did it a lot better than yeah. he does, actually. <laughs> Sorry, did, was I meant to be better? Well, it's more sort of pies, pies, who wants a custard pie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and advice from Gladys is shut your eyes and it won't hurt. Yes. Living Doll is now on the radio. Yes. Um, is that Cliff Richard? Because yes. he later does it with the young ones. He doesn't does. He? That's the only reason you know it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, the old couple are now there. Yes. Because their landlady broke her leg. Had an accident, <laughs> luckily. But, so Spike continually gets thrown in the pool through mm-hmm. this scene, doesn't yes. he? Yes. Um, you've got Hilda on her organ. Yes. Really over the top. She gets very overexcited and the hair sort of goes all yeah. over the place, doesn't it? So. And, and you get Heidi High. Heidi Ho! Done at least three times yes. in like in ten seconds, yes. don't you? We learn the girl yellow coats are called what, Mary, Sylvia and Betty. Yes. And then you've got Stanley, Bruce and Gary. And Gary. Who are who, the boys. Who will change. Oh, do they change? No, Gary changes. All right. Why do you change? Him. I don't right. know. Different actor plays him. Okay. I'm not sure if it's between this episode and the next one or if it's later on in the series, but a different actor plays him. Peggy's very keen on doing the hody hose, yes. isn't she? She's very enthusiastic. She stood in the background with an armful of... I'm not sure what she's cold Is it in. towels Towels or something, or something yeah. Jeffrey comes in with his with his pies on the <laughs> tray and he doesn't quite know when he's... Yes, supposed w- to come when on. When he's due on. Mm-hmm. So with a bit of help from Gladys, yeah. he sort of gets it right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Spiker picks an argument with Ted. Mm-hmm. What should we do with him? Ted picks an argument oh, with sorry. Spike. Yeah. Yeah. So, what should we do with him? Throw him in the pool. Uh, was it the old lady says he'll get soaked? Yeah. Well, yes, there is water in the pool. <laughs> yes. It'd be more dangerous if there wasn't. No, might get a bit hurt. So, there, then we meet Uncle Willie. Uncle Willie. Oh, he loves kids. And he, Mr. Partridge comes on, but get, get out of the way. Get out of the way. way. <laughs> Shoves all these kids. Hello, kids. I love you all. Um, Apart Yvonne, from that one over there. Yvonne and Barry um, come on and do a little bit of a turn. And she, she sort of, I mean, it is in the script, but she sort of, sort of, her ankle goes all the way. Yeah. But in, in the background in this scene, I said, um, what's happened to Fred Quilly? Yeah, because I don't know. I don't know if it is... Um, Felix Bonas and it just doesn't look like him before. Uh, he's a really weird camera angle because yeah. I, I said what is it you know couldn't he make it on film and did they have to sort of put Trevor Peacock in his costume already... or something because that's what it looks like to me but it's, he's already there yeah I know it's not film it's just a continuation of that same thing I think it's just the angle I think it must be him yeah okay so. but Gladys comes on with her xylophone yes. all three notes of yes. it at one point she hit, she doesn't quite hit does she get it hit, wrong she doesn't get it wrong but she doesn't hit quite hit the first note properly so yeah. it doesn't go <laughs> okay. there's mention of the, the pig and whistle bar mm-hmm. and uh, Marty Storm comes on and does a little bit of jailhouse rock yeah Sylvester McCoy did that once with the spoons All right, okay. he was playing King Rat and Dean Whittington oh did we see that yes oh, blimey. Uh, Peggy does all the actions yes. as well doesn't she because yes. you're supposed to wave you your arms wave about wave your arms about yeah yeah so uh, Fred Quilly comes on and I've just put he does some horse actions yes he sort of rides around he rides like himself around horse, doesn't yeah. he sort of whipping I'm doing his... reactions I don't know why no, I say, um, he complains that this audience would laugh at anything mm-hmm. he's a much more cynical character at this point they yeah. soften that as time goes on don't they so Jeffrey comes on with his pies mm-hmm. although he nearly goes off when he's told to go away yeah. doesn't he no and uh, he's, he's told to say it louder mm-hmm. and shall I give him the pie <laughs> Yes, in the, right in the face. Mm-hmm. So then we get a photo montage sequence yes. of, of the activities of the week. Of the week, don't yes. we? In we lots of photos of Jeffrey just looking embarrassed. Yeah, ev- in every- the everybody's having fun and is dressed up, and yeah. Jeffrey's just sort of lurking there, 
you know, like a mm-hmm. fish out of water. Mm-hmm. I like crazy night, especially where everybody's <laughs> pulling faces and stuff. And he's just there all silent and solemn, isn't he? <laughs> but after the sort of Friday night, mm-hmm. it, it's all over. Spikes comes in as the funny caveman mm-hmm. with a big bone. Yes. Yeah. Ted says um, about how the professor was just looked embarrassed and yes. couldn't do a farewell speech. Mm-hmm. But he's packing his bags already. But he's not the right sort. Mm-hmm. Ted gets a letter, though, to say he's been rejected for the TV role. Mm-hmm. And he's a bit sort of depressed now, because I think he feels mm. old, doesn't he? Yes. And he's slowing down. There's a bit of melancholy here. Yes. But maybe he'll get the professor's job. Mm-hmm. Spike's been thrown in the pool 27 times. He did three when, when Ted wasn't around. Wasn't there, yeah. And I like the joke, how are your ears now, eh? Yeah. <laughs> At the end of this scene, there's a mm. fade to black. Yes. And then a very weird round of applause. Bit, yeah, but, but yeah. I don't, it almost yeah. felt like there was an edit there. Yes. But I don't quite know why. Yeah. It's the sort of applause you get after a sort of mad, funny film sequence yeah. or something. It's weird. Yeah, unless you've got fed in mum's sake. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, Jeffrey is packing, mm-hmm. claiming that he, he actually is boring, no matter where mm-hmm. he is. And Ted should have his job. He's saying this to Gladys in his chalet, isn't yes. he? Yes. Um, he wants the staff brought together so he can say goodbye to them. Mm-hmm. And then the old couple turn up on film, don't yes. they? And they come in. Although, again, the film in the studio don't quite no, match up, no, do they? they never but, do, do but they? they so. um, but they basically say how it's grand being daft and they've had great fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeffrey sort of was all did it properly. Yes. He was sort of, you know, quiet. And, he supervised in his own quiet way. Yeah. yeah. And I like the line about Harold Macmillan says, you've never had it so good. Well, mm. we've never had it. Yeah. I don't know quite what he means, but... Um, and he, he gives him... The old man gives him a tip. Yes. And Jeffrey's just sort of sat there stunned, isn't yes. he? Yes. He doesn't quite know what to say, does he? So at the meeting, Gladys is sorry that he might be going, but it turns out that after this encounter... He's Jeffrey's made his mind up and says mm-hmm. thanks to you all. Um, and let's do the same next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted, can we go through the bit with the pies though, so I can do it better? Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. He's, he's keen to actually yes. get it right. Maybe they they should throw the pies at Ted instead. Mm-hmm. Um, says Fred Quilly. But um, what Ted does is absolutely marvelous. Um, mm-hmm. Says Jeffrey, which I think actually cheers Ted up a bit, doesn't yes. it? Uh, yeah. I think Ted just wants to feel as though he's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, a good job as well. So yes. being told that by Jeffrey actually yeah. is good. And there's not so much of the sort of fiddle stuff yet. They no. don't redevelop that until we get no. into the series. Um so Ted's looking forward to seeing the new lot of campers. Yes. Maybe I'll meet meet somebody nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, they go off to the pig and whistle. Although Spike says he should get some earplugs. Yes. <laughs> just to be on the safe side. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the episode. Yes. So, what do you think as a, as a pilot? How do you think that works? I think it works really well. I think it establishes the characters really well, but it mm. still gives them somewhere to go to develop them. Um, particularly Peggy. Yeah. Peggy gets a lot of development over yeah. the series. But it's it's a 40-minute yes. one. And I think, because there are edited versions of it that, mm-hmm. that have been repeated that are shorter, aren't yeah. there? Yeah. And I, I think that those 40 minutes are mm. exactly right. Yes, I think it pays having that little sort of 10 extra minutes or so just yeah. to help develop the characters. Because I, 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 can't, I can't think quite what you... What you would cut out, no. I, I, I know. No. Um, if you know, there are articles about what 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 has been cut and, mm-hmm. and what have you. But all of this feels absolutely necessary yes. to me. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's as you say, it's it's very much set up. 
But mm-hmm. I mean, again, compare that with with the first episode of Porridge, yes, which is which is very minimalist compared mm-hmm. to some of the episodes of the series. This, you've got all the filming. It's not yeah. as though you know they don't go on location no. for the swimming pool or anything. Mm-hmm. All that is there in place mm-hmm. right from the yeah. from from the from the off. So. So yeah, you said about the ratings, and, and yes. I, I think it would have had to have really bombed not to go for a mm-hmm. series, just yeah. just because there is, as you say, so much potential here. But then again, you see, it depends because it was shown on New Year's Day. There is the possibility that a lot of people just weren't really watching television. I, I think ITV um, there was a film on ITV or something, and that got about twenty million. Oh, right, gosh, so okay. people were watching telly; they just so, weren't, weren't watching BBC One. So they, yeah. it was a premiere or something, was it? Uh, if you pass me the Heidi High book, I can tell you. Okay. So, yeah, here we are. According to the uh, Heidi High Companion book, the pilot got 4.4 million, mm-hmm. up against Test Cricket on BBC Two with 0.7 million, and the television premiere of Paint Your Wagon, which got 20.7 million viewers. Wow. <laughs> that was in the days when, you know, a, a premiere of a film actually... Yeah. Meant something on the telly. I was yeah. expecting you to say some like James Bond film no. or something like that. Paint your wagons a very odd choice. Yeah, for people to want to watch. But there you go. That's what they were watching that day. But yeah, um, yeah. great little pilot. Yeah, and I think should we announce now that we once we finish our videos about porridge in a couple of weeks, first series. Of yeah, porridge. porridge series one. We're gonna. Yes. Do the rest of Heidi High series. Yeah, we we're going to so. alternate between the two series. Ultimately, it means that we'll be doing more Heidi High than Porridge because obviously there is more Heidi High yeah. than Porridge. Yeah, there and, we go. Uh, yeah. So there we are. There's mm-hmm. our first episode mm-hmm. for the new year for twenty 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 for the new decade. Yes. Thank you to everybody who's contributed, mm-hmm. and hopefully we might get some familiar names coming back. Yes. Fairly soon. Yes. We shall see. Mm-hmm. And we'll just see you. See you soon. See you in the next one. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 44 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings, Paul Chandler, Toppy Smelly and Martin Holmes. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for the pilot episode of Heidi High was by Jimmy Perry and David Croft. And the producer was... David Croft! Okay.
It's all right, I won't put that on there. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it running. <laughs> uh, there we go. Oh, better. <laughs> I don't. It almost yeah. felt like there was an edit there. Yes. But I, I don't quite know why. Yeah.